And I want to share it with you this morning because I think it has a lot of keys for us today. Generational expectations are moving us from looking at our lives as an isolated occurrence to realizing that what we do does affect others, especially those we love the most, our children. Our actions have much more of an effect than what we can ever begin to understand and realize. I think that's so important. Even though we may not think we are very influential, that's the farthest thing from the truth. We are, you are, as a parent, the most influential persons on this planet for your children. You may not have the far-reaching impact on others that some have, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Billy Graham. I'm talking about you and your family. And it only takes one person influenced in the right direction to change the world that they live in. We as parents, we as grandparents, as we look at the generational expectations, as we look at what we're establishing in our homes, in our families, we have no idea of the impact of what that provides for the future. Our world is changing faster now than it ever has before. The pace of change is unprecedented. Technology um, is of, of information sharing is rocketing, uh, as it's never been that way before. Cell phones, texting, email, Twitter, Facebook, it, it's just out of control, absolutely out of control. And that's, what that's doing is that that's creating more and more of a generational gap. Because those of us that are technology challenged are being outpaced by our kids. And they're running so far ahead of us when it comes to this that we're having a hard time keeping up. And as a result, the generational gap is getting wider and wider and wider. And we as Christian parents need to do everything we can to protect our children and the generation that they're growing into. Just like that little video here we just watched with Bill Cosby. He needed direction to find his people. And he was so confused because he didn't know where his people were at. And I know it was funny, but in reality, we're just that susceptible to be lost if we don't know where our people are at. Where are our kids at? Where are they going? How are we directing them? How are we helping them? We as Christian parents have a significant, significant impact, and we need to talk about that a little bit. We're moving into the area of the millennial generation, and that is those that are born after 1982. According to Doug Stringer, founder of Somebody Cares and author of the book, Who's Your Daddy? Millennials are a generation at risk. He says in his book, one-third of them have been drunk in the last month. One in four uses illegal drugs. One million are pregnant, and a third of those will seek an abortion. Millennials see 14,000 sexual references in media each year. And a recent study announced this week that watching media depict sexual activity increases the likelihood that teens will also participate in sexual activity outside of marriage. 40% have a self-inflicted injury. One in five has contemplated suicide. And over 1,500 kids will kill themselves. 
our generation is rapidly spreading apart. We're, we're, we're exploding, we're imploding, we're just not doing the things that we need to do as a generation, as a society. Three points I want to talk today about generational expectations. Number one, I want to talk about the progression of generational expectations. Number two, I want to talk about what are we to tell the coming generation. And number three, how do we do it? Let's talk about the progression. Number one, the progression of uh, generational expectations. A couple of little quips here. What one generation winks at, the second generation looks at, and the third generation becomes. What one generation winks at, or we just kind of look away, we just kind of give it a little wink of the eye, thinking, it's okay, it's just a fad, he'll get over it. And we don't, get it, we don't take it seriously. The second generation will take a full-fledged look at it and absorb it. And by the, thir- by the time the third generation comes, it's who they are. They embrace it and they become it. That's the progression of how we assimilate things in our life. Another little equipment is what you ignore, you condone. What you ignore, you condone. If you just let it go, then that generation is going to say, well, it must be okay. It must be all right. Mom and Dad didn't say no. No, that's not true, is it at all? What you ignore, in their mind, you're condoning it. So we're going to keep talking about that. Now, the natural trend of human depravity is that once something happens or is done once, and I know this in my life, and you probably know it's yours, and yours as well, that it's easier to do it the second time. And it's easier to do it the third time. And the fourth time. And finally, the nth time comes along, and it becomes normal. What I struggled with the first time, knowing that I probably shouldn't do it, the second time is just a little bit easier. Third time, a little bit easier. Fourth time, and before long, it becomes normal. I've just seared my conscience. It doesn't mean that what I did was right. It means that I've taken what was wrong and I've made it right because my conscience doesn't bother me anymore. That's not biblical right. That's conscience right. That's society right. What was wrong to do one time slowly but surely becomes okay. And all of a sudden, we're we're wrapped into doing something that we shouldn't be doing. And then what happens? Unfortunately, what happens is that the person, after we've done something as a society, and we've gotten to the point that society norms are not right norms, are not biblical norms, then as soon as somebody steps up and says, you're wrong, you know who who is made looking like a fool? The person that calls out the wrong. They're the ones that are looked at as closed-minded, that we're afraid, that we can't handle society norms, that we can't grow and we can't become relative to our culture today. And all of a sudden, we become the bigot. And we become the person that is wrong in the fact that we're calling out the wrong. And it happens. You know it happens. You've seen it. This generation is guilty of calling evil good and acceptable and criticizing those that see the evil in evil and are standing for what is biblically correct, not politically correct. It's 
pretty obvious statement, isn't it? That's nothing that's earth-shattering. We know that. And there's all kinds of examples of it. We can think of in our lives and in our situations with abusive drinking and drug abuse, sex outside of the, of the marriage relationship. We see it all the time, more and more on TV, same-sex relationships. You see the TV shows. They are condoning homosexuality every time you turn on the TV with a lot of the sitcoms that are happening today. They say it's okay. It's okay to have sex outside of the marriage relationships. And you can, you can have sex with your, a man and man and women and a woman. And they don't think it's wrong anymore. Because Hollywood really doesn't think it's wrong. They really don't. They've been duped. And they really believe it's right. And they are slowly... Um, and, and bring it into our homes. Every time you turn on the TV and, and you watch it, understand little ears, if you have little ones in your home, are hearing it. Every time that they're hearing it, they're thinking, boy, it must be okay. must be okay. Mom and Dad aren't saying it's bad. Mom and Dad aren't saying it's bad. must be it's okay. And before long, all of a sudden, we have the things that we know are wrong, but are becoming more and more subtly brought into our lifestyle, and we're becoming normalized by it, and we're becoming duped by it. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 23, in the Amplified Bible, it says this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are mighty heroes of drinking wine and men of strength of mixing alcoholic drinks, who justify and acquit the guilty for a bribe, but take away the rights of the innocent and righteous from them. Woe to those. That's a pretty bold, pretty strong statement. It doesn't say shame on you. It says woe. And typically when the Bible says woe, there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming, typically, when the Bible says woe to those. And there is. If you read through that, if you go down and finish that, that chapter in Isaiah, you will hear and you will read the judgment that God placed on the Israelites for the things that they were doing. Now, I know this is Old Testament. I know we live in the, in the New Testament age. We live under grace. But the Old Testament is still the Word of God. It's still as much of the Word of God today as it was then. Now, thank goodness we don't live under the bondages and we don't live under the law of the Old Testament. But when it says woe to me to the Old Testament, it says woe to me in the New Testament. When God says woe, you better stop. Because there's only bad things coming if you don't. And he's not saying it in a way to take good things from me. He's not t saying it in a way to, to, to make my life miserable. He's not saying it so that I can be grumpy and I don't have good things. That's not why he's saying it. He's saying it to protect me from the judgments that come, and not just judgments from him, but judgments from our own natural self. Consequences. You have, you have marriage or you have sex outside of the marriage a bond with multiple people, and chances are you're probably going to get some type of a sexually transmitted disease. Okay, how are you going to avoid that? Well, just don't have sex. I mean, just, just take the obvious things here, and why do you risk it? And he doesn't say woe to you because he doesn't want you to have fun, because that's, that may seem like fun for the moment, but if you would wait and hold it to marriage in a prime location in a marriage relationship with a spouse that God has but served for you from, from the moment of, of their inception and keep it before them, 
And then you come together unified at that point in time. That is what it's geared for. And when you have it that way, and I'm using that as an example, but when you have it that way, it'll be perfect. And it'll be the way that God wanted it to be. Now, you can take a look at that, and you can apply that to all the other sins that we have too. But the point of all this is to say that obviously we as a society are in a moral decline and it's affecting all of us. No one is exempt from the decline that's happening in our society. And this is not a time to put our heads in the sand and deny the facts. This is not a time to say ignorance is bliss. This is a time for righteous Christian people to step up and do what's right. It's a time for us to take a stand against the sin in our lives, the sin in our camp, in a loving, righteous way. The word loving is the key word. I'm not talking judgmental. I'm not talking, I'm better than you. I'm not talking that way. I'm talking love. Because love is the key word in everything we bring a rebuke to. If it's not done in love, it's not done right. If you discipline your children in anger, it's not right. You discipline your children in love. Jesus, God, disciplines us and he directs us in love. And when we accept it in love, great things happen. And things change for the positive. But it's time. It's time for us to go back to our roots and claim back the holiness of godly living in order to protect our future generations. It's time. Now is the time. All right, number two. What are we to tell the coming generation? What are we to tell the coming generation? We're instructed through God's word the importance of teaching our children about God. It is our responsibility to lead them in godly ways. Too many times we've all heard the excuses that many people give about the, for the reason that my child is bad. My child is bad because the school system didn't teach them. My child is bad because the church wasn't strong enough. They didn't have a good Sunday school program. My child is bad because, the, because we didn't have a youth pastor or the youth pastor didn't lead them and teach them how to worship. Or worse yet, the preacher wasn't any good. Woe to that preacher. But, but we have so many excuses about why our children aren't what they should be. Now, this is not a message of condemnation. So I don't want that to be, to be known right now. I don't want anybody to think that I'm condemning or bringing any judgment. Remember, everything is done in love because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the thing we need to know, but we still need to say it. I'm saying that we need to have good schools. We need to have good churches. We need to have good youth programs. We need to have good preaching. We need to have all that stuff. We do. But what I'm really coming down to saying, the most important thing, is that parents, parents, listen, and future parents, listen, the responsibility is yours to train up your children. God is going to hold you accountable for your children, not the, not the Sunday school teacher. Not the preacher, not the school teacher, not the principal at school, not us as a collective society, but he's going to come to you, parent. What did you teach that child? You were, I gave them to you as a steward of that child. I gave them to you to nurture them and to train them and to lead them and to teach them and to bring them up in a godly fashion. What did you do with them? What did you do with them? That's going to be a question that's going to come to you. 
So this is very serious. Again, this is not condemning. This is not judgmental. This is a loving encouragement to get it serious about this, to get serious about raising your children because you are responsible for their generational blessings and expectations. I'm responsible for my children and my grandchildren. And you're, and you're responsible for yours. We all come together. We work together. But here's the deal. Even if we had a perfect system, even if we had a perfect school system, even if we had a perfect church, a perfect youth pastor, a perfect pastor, a perfect everything, you know what they see most? What happens at home. What happens when you get home? What happens when the doors are closed and it's just you and your wife? That's what kids see. That's what impacts them more than anything else, is what happens at home. What happens when there's nobody watching and mom and dad are talking or arguing? Or are we teaching them how to love? Are we teaching them how to be godly? The book of Psalms reminds us that teaching the next generation is really the parent's responsibility. Psalms chapter 78 verses 1 through 7 in the NIV. Let's read through this. Chapter 78, verses 1 through 7. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established a law in Israel where he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. Clearly, the, the writer here, or the singer of this passage in Psalms, is talking about the absolute importance that we tell our children. Because then they didn't have a lot of written word. Most of the things that was translated down was through, was through oral translation and oral traditions and stories. So the parents were responsible to tell their kids, tell them about the godly things, tell them about how God has saved you in the past and and teaching them about uh, how to trust God for their future. Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, it says, this is in the message translation, Genesis 18, 17 through 19. Then God said, Shall I keep back from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is going to become a large and strong nation. All the nations of the world are going to find themselves blessed through him. Yes, I've settled on him as the one to train his children and future family to observe God's way of life. Live kindly and generously and fairly so that God can complete in Abraham what he promised. Again, God is putting the responsibility on Abraham to teach his next generations. Now, we may not be Abraham. But we are a representative of him in that the only way that this prophecy that God gave Abraham will come true is if we pick up the mantle of Abraham and we teach our children what God instructed Abraham to teach his children, then we need to pick that up and we need to do our part in our life changing and teaching our children. So it seems right then that we just do that. So given the state of our society and that we live in where right is wrong and right or wrong is deemed as right, 
Let me ask a very simple, straightforward question. What's wrong with rules and guidelines for right living? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying a yes is a yes, a no is a no, a black is a black, a white is a white? Why do we have to be concerned about the politically correctness of this world? When we know that the politically correctness of this world has taken us down a rat hole, has taken us down a sewer pipe that has no value in it, why are we concerned about the politically correctness? Why don't we just stand up then in our families and say, guys, this is right and this is wrong, and do the right and don't do the wrong? What's wrong with rules? Why are we so afraid of rules? Why do we say when, when we think of rules, we think legalism, and we think, oh, now you're going to get into me and tell me what I can't do and what I cannot do? What's wrong with that? If they're right rules, what's wrong with obeying the rules? I don't see anything wrong with it. What I see wrong is when, our, is when we let our culture water it down to the point where we don't know what really is right or wrong anymore. We see the TV portraying parents as either being so cool that we have to be our friends with our kids and that we have to be one of their buddies. We've got to be on their chat room. We've got to be on their, on their buddy list, on, your, on, on their phones. That's what we see our society telling us, to be that parents have to be friends with their kids. Or you'll see the parents as bumbling idiots that the kids don't respect anyway because they're just stupid. And they're bumbling idiots and with no respect. Our society does not want the family to be a strong unit. Do you understand that? The enemy that we're fighting does not want the family to succeed. He wants the family to fall apart. Because if, if the family falls apart, this country falls apart. If this country falls apart, which it's doing rapidly, we go down a rat hole. And there's no hope. Understand this. We are not to be our children's friend. We're to be their parent. And if I'm their parent, I'm, I'm going to risk them getting mad at me sometimes. But if they know that I love them, and if they know that I'm concerned more about their long-term livability, their long-term life, I'm concerned about their eternal life, more concerned about are they happy with me because they're late for curfew or because they want to date someone they, they shouldn't be dating or whatever their situation is, if they know that I'm more concerned about their eternal life, then maybe they'll understand it someday, but I don't need to be concerned about it. I shouldn't be concerned about it. All right, so now we've talked about the generational, where it's going. we talked about um, that we're to make the call. Now, how do we do it? How do we do it? Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 in the New King James Version says this. Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, 6 chapter, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment. We've heard a woe, and now we're hearing a commandment. Two very strong words in the Bible. Woe, and now let's hear what the commandment is. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. They're, go, they're getting ready to go into Jordan. These commandments 
which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, generations here, three generations, you, your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that, so that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may re- multiply greatly, as the Lord God gave your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's talking about going over the land of Jordan. Now, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on a doorpost of your house and on your gates. I like the way... The message puts verses 6 through 9. The message puts verses 6 through 9 in this way. Write these commandments that I have given you today on your hearts. He's talking to the parents. Get them inside of you, and then get them inside your children. Talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the street. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you fall into bed at night. Tie them on your hands and foreheads as a reminder. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your homes and on your city gates. Parents, there's nothing wrong with having a godly home. That nothing wrong for having a godly home. And when your kids' friends come into your, your home, let them know this is a godly home. Let them know that they're coming into a righteous life, living here. Not perfect, not holier than thou but righteous and that they love God. Put them on your doorpost. Put it on your house. Let them know that Jesus lives in your house. You know, when it says about here about get them inside of you, get the commandments of God, parents, inside of you, and then get them inside your children, it reminds me of when you fly in a commercial airliner and you're sitting there getting ready to take off and the stewardess comes on and she's giving you all the warnings that's going to happen when you crash. <laughs> all the things you've got to do. She says, first of all, if you have an oxygen problem and if we have a de- uh, decompression in the, in the airplane, you're going to have an oxygen mass fall out, of the, fall out of the sky, okay? Fall out of the compartment ahead of you. When you see that and you're sitting and you're with a child, put it on you first. Put yours on first and then put it on the child. And the reason they say that is because if you don't put yours on first and they have a rapid de- uh, decompression and oxygen is sucked out of the plane and you lose consciousness while you're trying to put it on your child, you're both going to die. But they say, get it on you first so that you don't lose oxygen, so that you don't lose consciousness. Put yours on first and then put it on the child. What, that's exactly what... The the writer here is saying, you have to get the Word of God inside you first. You get it in you first, and then you teach it to your child. But you just can't send your children to Sunday school. You just can't send them over here and say, let them teach them. Because as soon as you get home, they're going to see what you really are. And then everything somebody was taught, they're going to come back and say, well, that's not the way my mom and dad live. Well, I'm sorry, this is really hard. But, but you know, this, this is what it's about. This is, what, this is what future generations are. And this is how important it is that we have to have it inscribed in our hearts first. As we conclude today, I want to give you some good news. Because this is a good news message. As long as you're here 
as long as you're hearing the word, this is a good news message. Because it's not too late. It's never too late to start the generational blessings in your home. Now, if I'm talking to um, people like most of us in here that have good upbringings, okay, this is an encouragement to keep going. This is encouragement to, to build on, the, on, on what was already instilled in your life from your grandparents and your parents. And this is an encouragement to keep going. If you happen to be coming in a situation here where you didn't have a good spiritual upbringing, maybe you had a, a broken home, maybe your parents abandoned you, whatever. I don't know the situation, but here's the good news. It's never too late to start one for your own. You can start it today. And here's the thing. God will forgive and restore and will put in you that you, you will be the stable rock of the next generations. They will look and they will call you blessed because you were the grandfather that stepped up and you're the one that said, I'm going to hold out here. And for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And you can make that your claim today regardless of what your situation was in the past. That's good news. And we need to walk in that, and we need to rest in that, and we need to take comfort in that. Now let me talk to the kids for a minute. Because I've been hammering your parents pretty hard here, haven't I? And you've been loving it, haven't you? All right, now I'm going to hammer you guys. Listen, what your parents tell you is vitally important. You need to listen to your parents. You need to know that what they're telling you is love and compassion and they only want what's best for you. You may not feel that at the time. You may be angry at them. You may be thinking, oh, they don't understand. They don't understand why I have to text at 10 o'clock at night and I have to keep talking to my 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I'm still on the computer doing emails and Twittering and texting. My parents just don't get it. They don't get it. Well, you know what? They do get it. They get it. And they get, what they get is this. You need a good night's rest. So put the phone down. Quit texting. Listen to your parents. They love you. They love you more than what you can even imagine. And they would do anything for you. And when they tell you these things, they tell you these things for your benefit, for your good, not for your demise. See, they, they are, they, your, your father and your mother are created in God's image. And God's image is love because the Bible says God is love. A godly home with godly parents means they are godly, loving parents. And they're doing the best they know how. Are they perfect? No, they're not perfect. Are they going to make mistakes? Yes, they're going to make mistakes. But that does not give you the right to ignore what they say. They're going to argue in front of you a little bit. Give them a break, okay? Just give them a break. They're not going to do everything right. But they're doing the things the best that they know how to do at the moment they're doing it because they want you to be raised in a godly fashion. Be forgiving of them. Love them. And they may not be your friend, but that's okay if they're not your friend, okay? Can you accept your parents not being your friend if they really love you as their parent? What would you rather have? Would you rather have a parent that's your friend? Or would you rather have a parent that's your parent that's going to guard you and guide you and put you down the right path for your life so that your life will go well with you in the end? Or would you rather have somebody that lets you do whatever you want whenever you want to do it because they're afraid to get mad, you're going to get mad at them? No. You want them to be a parent. So let them be the parent. Has everybody felt hammered today? Are you happy? 
That's why I put that video at the front. I wanted to get you guys smiling a little bit. But this is a good, this is a good message. This is a good word, and this is not a condemning message at all. In fact, it's a perfect time to go into communion. <laughs> and what I do, what I'd like to do this morning, is that I'd like to gather in family units. So, if you have a family here, would you kids, would you go to your parents? And you can take it to how many ever generations you want to. Okay. If, if your grandparents here, if you want to go gather around your parents and your grandparents, that's okay. But I think it's important. Now, if you don't have a family here, then come down here and we're going to be a family. Because I want to take communion today in the context of family, in the context of generational expectations. Fathers, you are the priest of your home. You are the priest of your home. That doesn't discount mothers. But the Bible puts it clearly that the father is the priest of the home. It doesn't make him a dictator, and it doesn't make him Hitler. Okay? You're not Hitler. You're the priest. There's a big difference between Hitler and the priest. A priest loves. A priest serves. A priest will do. He'll, he'll wash your feet. A priest will do. He'll lead by serving. Hitler led by killing. <laughs> we're not Hitlers. We're priests, fathers. So as you, as you look at your families, and as you take that, that priestly role in your family, take it seriously. Take it seriously. And, and, and let, let your family know that you love them so much that you will risk not being their friend because you love them. 